by way of introduction, um, I want to speak a little bit first of all about one of the most significant challenges that faces our modern culture, both here in this country and in other places in the world, and that is the whole idea that our culture is breaking down. The idea of family breakdown is, is a very serious issue. Uh, and it's relevant to all of us. We've got some younger ones here today. And uh, the, this whole issue of family life uh, and the breakdown of family life is very serious, isn't it? I was reading a couple of research papers this week written by uh, the Social Policy Justice Group who, who've been researching some of these issues recently. Let me read the quote from the, uh, the summary. The family is where the vast majority of us learn the fundamental skills for life, physically, emotionally, and socially. It is the context from which the rest of life flows. However, family stability in Britain has been in continuous decline for four decades. And adults and children today are increasingly faced with the challenges of families which are dysfunctional, fractured, or fatherless. 15% of babies are born into homes with no resident dad. And this is especially the case in the least advantaged sections of society, but these trends also profoundly affect people across the socio-economic spectrum. The people who wrote this uh, sum up with three words, families are dissolving, they're dysfunctional and they're dadless. I don't know if a preacher wrote that, because that's good alliteration now, isn't it? Um, families are breaking up, they are messed up, and, and often the, the, that's because there are absent dads. Uh, let me show you just briefly some of the things they, that they found, just um, five or six things here. First of all, this is an escalating problem. Since the early 1970s, there has been a decline in marriage and a significant rise in the numbers of lone parent families since this, well it said four decades there, 40 years of consistent decline. That's worrying, isn't it? It's, uh, what's going to happen in the next 40 years? Um, the second thing, th this is not a Christian uh, research, but the, the, the people uh, who wrote this uh, talk a little bit about the fact that living together is not a solution because actually cohabitation is even more fragile than marriage has been. And, and actually the rise in family breakdown has been driven by people who live together separating. Let, let me just read to you some statistics here. Euro European data shows that by the time a child is five, less than 1 in 12 married parents have split up compared to almost 1 in 2 couples who live together. That means that 43% of parents who live together will have split up before their child reaches the age of 5. So we talk about divorce rates going up. Actually, and people say, oh, people should live together, not get married, that's much better. Actually, living together actually contributes and makes the problem worse, not better. Um, 
one of the significant issues here is that these problems are repetitive, of course, because when a child grows up in that sort of dysfunctional breakdown, what happens is that there are no role models there and that that cycle is repeated in their own lives. And this report notes that the intergenerational transmission of family breakdown is seen in the way children who have been neglected or unnatured are highly likely to go on to create dysfunctional families subject to further breakdown. There is an over-representation in teen pregnancy statistics of girls from fatherless and broken homes. That is to say, if you grow up in a broken home, it is more likely that you will create uh, a broken home. Just uh, practically, crime. Crime is strongly correlated with family breakdown. 70% of young offenders are from lone parent families. Shall I say that again? 70% of all young criminal offenders are from lone parent families. One third of prisoners in our prisons were in local authority care. And the cost, this research paper says that the costs of family breakdown to our economy are estimated to be well over £20 billion per year. He'd want to be a politician. <laughs> Isn't that bleak? Family breakdown. Let me just touch on a couple of other things as well. Politicians have been legislating to try and solve these issues for the last 40 years and it's made very little difference. Uh, over the last 25 years, every year, 40,000 families break up. And research across 18 different countries in Europe has found that as divorce rates have been going up, 20% of those increased divorces are directly due to the combined effect of legislation not protecting uh, marriage and family. So in other words, the laws that we're making are contributing to the problem and not eradicating it. Let me just say uh, uh, two quick things about, about policy. Number one, when politicians try to say, or culture tries to say, that everything is the same, when it isn't, that is a massive cop-out. What I mean by that is that people try to say, does it really matter if you're married? If that, if that works for you, that's fine. And that's no different than living together or not living together or same-sex relationships. All of these things are understandable and they're all uh, valid lifestyle choices. This research project is not a Christian one, but it says this, at first sight, the aim of policy to support all kinds of families appears laudable but it, but it ignores the fact that some family types on average result in better outcomes for children and adults than others, i.e. being married. <laughs> I could have told them that from the Bible but statistically that's true. Research shows the report recognises the, the tension in this. This is a delicate issue, I know it is. 
the, the people who wrote the article said, obviously this poses a fundamental dilemma for policy. How can a government promote family stability without undermining lone parent families? And conversely, how can a government support lone parents without undermining family stability? This working group report in no way intends to stigmatise lone parents who do a very difficult job, usually with far fewer resources than couple families. As the National Council for One Parent Family states, lone parenthood is rarely a lifestyle choice. However, to date, family stability has almost been completely ignored and support for lone parents has been the focus. So there is tension there. The second thing that I wanted to say is not just that you, you can't say that everything is the same, because it isn't. Statistically, it isn't. But the other issue politically is that when you try to exclude morality from public spheres, it doesn't help. And you, you know that I've been banging on about this for the last couple of years. Our culture is, has rampant secularism in it. And the idea is, it's okay for you to believe and have faith, but when you come to work, leave your faith in the wardrobe at home. And don't talk about it in the public sphere, because we don't want any of that moral nonsense to come into the public sphere. In other words, faith will only serve to make you judgmental, critical and narrow-minded. We can't have that, so leave your moral opinions at home. The problem with that is, it doesn't work. You can't leave your moral opinions at home when they're part of you. The only reason secular people say that is because they don't leave their moral opinions in the wardrobe at home. They bring them to work and try to force everyone else to leave theirs in the wardrobe at home. It's, it's, it's pathetic and ridiculous. And, and I'm pleased, when I read this report, it says, we reject the comfortable mantra that our policy can be or should be wholly morally neutral on the grounds that this is unworkable in practice. Hallelujah. <laughs> These are politicians who are actually realising that. Although moralising is to be avoided, committed relationships are essential for the social ecology of the family, the community and the country, and families which are formed on the basis of these should therefore be encouraged. The policy-making community has been markedly reluctant to grasp the nettle of family breakdown by being clear about the benefits of marriage. The last 40 years have seen sweeping demographic changes which have profoundly affected the whole of our society, yet there is no significant debate concerning its causes, effects and likely remedies. How scathing is that? Can you see how relevant Titus is? <laughs> now, to this. What is interesting here, just if you've got your finger in Titus, we're not going to talk about politics. I want to talk about the family. Look at what Paul says here in Titus. In chapter 1 and verse 11, he says, These false teachers must be silenced. Why? Because they are ruining families by teaching things that they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. Then in chapter 2 that we read, that Emma read to us in a beautiful Irish accent, said here, Paul says, teach the older men, we're going to come on to that. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is God, why? what is good, sorry. Why? Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to the husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. What's he talking about? Family. Paul is working hard to establish the fact 
that Christian theology is a force for good and that the gospel changes people's lives and is an influence for good in our culture. We entitled our series Establishing an Effective Church and Paul here is writing to Titus to tell him what to do in order to achieve that. Chapter 1 is all about leadership. Chapter 2 is all about relationships. The Christian gospel is often caricatured in the media as being culturally regressive, old-fashioned, narrow-minded, even judgmental. And yet here, Paul's answer to the breakdown of family life in Crete and the breakdown of family life in our culture and the reversal of all those destructive trends is the power and the light of the Christian gospel. That's his solution. Last time we would think about chapter 2 verse 1. Which says, Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. I would love to preach that sermon again. But we won't, because we need to preach a different one this week. I cannot tell you how much I want you to weigh those words seriously. This is not Mickey Mouse. This is a matter of life and death. Titus, don't pussyfoot around. You need to teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. It matters. And why does he use the word sound? Because what is sound is wholesome and healthy. And it's not just wholesome and healthy, it is health-giving. It is a force for good. What is this sound doctrine? Well, this whole letter really is about the issue of salvation, isn't it? That God cares for our broken culture and he cares for the individuals in it. He cares about all the broken homes and dysfunctional families. And that should encourage us. But it is only half the story. Because the gospel includes in it the fact that God is angry about all this brokenness. And he is angry with us. The Christian gospel is about God being loving. But that is only half the story. We had a royal wedding. When was it? A couple of weeks ago. It's a fantastic spectacle. Two billion people. Beautiful church, amazing flowers, amazing hats, and that dress. Looked really good, the Archbishop of Canterbury, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't be uh, naughty. Do you know that that royal wedding? Yesterday at the conference, there was an American guy who led the last session. And he talked about the privilege of coming to London. And he said, you know, London is one of the most important cities on the face of this planet. 
all the peoples of the world travel through London. 4,000 men there. He did apologise for being American as well, because there's a lot of guff comes out of America, you know that, and so does he. But he said, you have just had the biggest single evangelistic opportunity since creation. Two billion people watching on TV. And the man, he wasn't meaning to be funny, but he said, I don't know the pastor of that church. <laughs> we don't call him a pastor, do we? I don't know the pastor of that church, but he blew it. Two billion people watching. What a gospel opportunity. And he blew it. Do you know why he blew it? He didn't say anything wrong. He, did, he just didn't say anything of any substance. He talked about God's love. He talked about faithfulness. He even talked about Jesus. He talked about morality. But he never talked about the gospel. The Christian gospel says that we are sinners. Rebels against a holy God who is different to us. And that we are not heading for a party. That we are heading for judgment. And to face the consequences of our failure to be what we ought to be. The Christian gospel is that God loves us enough to send his son to die. To take the punishment that we deserve so that we could be made right. That's the gospel. And the Christian answer to family breakdown is not politics primarily, although that's important. The answer is the gospel. What God commands all of us to do, everywhere, here and everywhere, is to repent of our sins and our excuses and to believe in him and start living for him. That's what changes culture. Some of you might be thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so was here. I wish all those people outside were here. If only they could hear this. But Paul isn't speaking here to outsiders. He's writing here to Titus to tell Christians this. He's not talking about non-Christians here. He's talking to you and me. So Paul says to Titus here in verse 1, Titus, don't Mess this up. Don't blow it, Titus. Don't be like the false teachers who are ruining families by teaching lies and half-tooths, which is just as bad. You, my friend, must teach sound doctrine. And don't stop there. Teach people who believe it to live in the light of it. So chapter 2 is all very practical, isn't it? Because you cannot separate the gospel from ethics. And some of us try so hard to do that. Oh, I want to believe and be a Christian, but I don't... Uh, but I, and, and there's a gap between what we say we believe and how we live. And it's a scandal. How are the world ever going to believe the gospel if we don't live up to it? And how are we going to live up to it if we have teachers who teach us half-truths? There are five groups of people here um, that Paul identifies, and they don't all relate to family. We're going to talk about work as well. It's very similar to what we did in 1 Peter, this, isn't it? Men and women and, and the subject of employment and citizenship. There are five groups, older men, older women, younger women, 
and younger men. And we need, we need to be uh, quick. I want to talk about men today, and then we'll talk about women next week, so I hope you come back. <laughs> but uh, today we're going to talk about men. Teach the older man. First thing I think when I read that is, what age is he talking about? Uh, is he talking about me? Or um, is he talking about my dad? Or my granddad? Well, obviously it's a relative term, isn't it? Older... Older men, older women, younger women, younger men. The word that he uses for older men is the same, well, it's not the same word, but it's the same family of words, presbyteros, that he gets the word elders from in chapter 1 and verse 5. So it's definitely got the idea of maturity in it. Do you know the character from history called Hippocrates? He was a philosopher. And he describes the seven stages of a man's life and he uses the same Greek word to describe the sixth one so and Paul himself uses the same word in Philemon to talk about himself when he was in his 60s so I don't think Paul when he says older man he's talking about someone who's like you know at death's door but he's talking about that period of life that we might call the grey beards, I don't know, the grey hairs. He's talking about men in, maybe in their mid to late 50s, 60s, before they become properly geriatric, I suppose. That period, retirement age maybe, we could say. Older men. You know the stage in a man's life, don't you? When you're young, you believe in Santa Claus. And then as you grow up, you don't. When you become a dad, you become Santa Claus. When you become an old man, you just end up looking like him. <laughs> I think that's far more pithy than Hippocrates. <laughs> the four stages of a man's life. So he's talking about men here who are past the years of having kids and family. Now, let's just stop here a minute. I think what Paul says here is very radical. If I was trying to start or grow a church... Well, bizarrely, which I am. I suppose I might be tempted to start with the young. Wouldn't you? If I wanted to affect a culture like the culture on Crete, surely you would start with the young, wouldn't you? But isn't it significant that after talking about how what a dysfunctional, disorientated culture Crete is, the first thing Paul says is, Titus, teach the older men, teach the greybeards, to live up to the faith that they profess. Isn't that, doesn't that strike you as quite counterintuitive? It's the opposite of what you'd expect. Titus, when you go to, the, to Crete, I've left you there, why don't you get, get, get together all the young ones and really inspire them with the gospel and send them out and don't worry so much about the old ones because they're kind of coming to the end of life and you can ignore them, but he doesn't start there at all. He starts with older men and older women. This is very relevant to our culture as well. Did you know that since the last census in 2001, for the first time in history, the number of over 65s now numbers the number of under 16s, and that that is increasing every year? It's partly due to 
a baby boom after the Second World War. It's also due to improving standards of medical care, I suppose. In the 20th century, the 1900s, life expectancy in that century grew by 30 years. Wow, 30 years? In the 1960s, uh, families had an average of nearly three kids. I, I always wonder how you can have 2.9 children. It's um, an average, obviously. In the early 70s, it was down to between one and two. So birth rates have been falling as well. It's a big issue that's political, isn't it? Because there's not enough people working to pay people's pensions who are kind of old. So the government are wondering where they can borrow and make some money from to kind of keep people who are living now into their 90s. Uh, regularly, you know, that life expectancy is growing. It's a big issue for our culture. So this is very relevant to our culture as well. It's the issue of broken families, the, the issue of older people. Why does he go there first? Well, let me first of all state just some obvious things that will be staring you in the face. The, I think the first thing to notice about this teaching is that there are differences between men and women and between younger people and older people. Is that not obvious? Because Paul says, teach this group this, teach this group this, teach this group this. Our culture would say, it doesn't really matter, everyone's the same. Our culture is always telling us that these differences are not important, but they are. And Paul is encouraging Titus to think about being specific in his application of the gospel. Not everyone needs the same. Everyone is an individual. And it's a different thing being 65 to being 15, or 25, or 35 even. You need to shape your ministry to make sure that all of these different groups are understanding the applications of the gospel. I think secondly, it's very obvious here that Paul is encouraging not isolation, but connection. He, he is arguing here that there should be a connection across those age groups, and this is countercultural as well. Our culture isolates the elderly. We crave youth. We abhor old age. And isn't it interesting, by the way, that as family breakdown is increasing and children are suffering as a result of that, we live in a culture that marginalises the elderly as well. And you, you can tell what a culture is like by how it treats its children and its old people, can't you? And we do, we do badly at both. I, let me say this as well in passing. I don't want our church, we're a small church and we're growing and that's exciting. I do not want our church to be segregated. They're the young ones, they're the old ones. Paul doesn't argue that here. He says the older men should be an example. The, younger, the older women should teach the young women. The younger ones should be willing to learn. There should be a healthy cooperation, not a fragmentation and isolation. And it's very sad in churches when it's kind of there are differences there, for sure. There's nothing wrong with having groups for different ages. But our church should be cooperating across those age ranges. And we need to work hard at that. And let me encourage you in that. Having people around for a meal. Some of you older ones, having a younger one around for a meal. Some of you younger ones, visiting some older one. Listening. Learning, it's important for us to kind of bridge that gap that can be isolating. Well, there's a couple of observations. This is the main thing, and this is the main point that I want to emphasize for the rest of our time. I think the reason Paul begins with older men 
is because he knows the power of a good example. What Paul is doing here is he is talking about role models. And in many ways, if the decline in this society and in ours is going to be reversed, then one of the biggest issues is for older people to show that what they have believed works. Isn't it? There's a lot to be said for Christians living in such a way as to make their faith attractive. Not just to a watching world, but you older ones here today, are you living in a way that would make a younger person say, man alive, I hope that when I get to that age, I'm like that. I want to live like they've lived, if that's what you look like at the end of it. Can, can you see the point I'm making? There's a lot at stake in that. This, this Christian teaching implies here that the older ones are a good example and the younger ones have the common sense to listen. But there's something here too about the fact that the way you live now as younger ones will affect what you're like when you're older. When you're younger you can hide to a degree, can't you, what you're really like because you've got energy and you can dash your bar and do all that stuff. But it's not until the energy starts to fade and the true colours begin to come out maybe even in older age you need to invest now and we'll, we'll see that as we go through one of the saddest realities I think in the Christian church is the fact that younger people from Christian homes leave church when they become adults and I know this is a complex issue and it can be painful for parents who have been faithful in bringing their children up as the Bible says in the fear of the Lord that can be very painful and when a, children, when a child rejects the gospel, it doesn't always mean that the parents have failed. I understand that. But far too often we see examples of parents who are not living out their faith at all. They actually expect more of their kids than they actually practice themselves. I've seen men who everyone in church thinks are really godly, but at home he's harsh and overbearing and has a vile temper. Nobody else sees that. Men who look godly on a Sunday but treat their kids harshly and are unkind to their wives. I've seen men who are cowards and can't face wearing the trousers and just leave everything to their wives for an easy life. Paul's saying something really important here. Where are the role models? Where are they? How on earth can you expect others to believe in Jesus if you live like a coward? What legacy will you leave behind? If your faith is weak, how do you ex it, I mean, is, is there going to be a, a gospel witness in Rotherham in a hundred years? To a large degree, that depends on you and me, doesn't it? If we don't live the Christian life, how can we expect other people to buy into it? Where are the role models? Remember that this culture in Crete was falling to bits. What does Paul say? Even one of your own prophets has said, Cretans are liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. He could be talking about Rotherham. 
This is written 2,000 years ago. It could have been written yesterday. This is a culture that is falling to bits. And yet Paul says, Titus, when you get there, teach the older man. These older ones must resist being sucked into the culture and start living like Christian men should live. How are the younger ones going to have any hope if the older ones can't get it right? Paul's starting point is not to begin with the young, but to plead with Titus to encourage the mature to actually be mature. Well, let's look at what Paul says, because we've not got long left. (laughs) Teach the older man. Now, he says six things here, and they split into two groups of three, and then we'll see how we go. little challenge at the end see what the Holy Spirit's got to say to us first of all he says teach the older man to be temperate what does that mean the idea behind that Greek word is someone who is not what the authorised version of the Bible calls a wine bibber someone who is not known for his excessive drinking if you walk down Wellgate, there's a temperance hall, and the Methodists were very famous for this, uh, sort of abstaining from alcohol, and you used to have temperance societies and temperance halls. The word temperate really is talked about drink in its original form, but it doesn't just mean that. I, I, a modern colloquial way of saying that is, teach the older men not to be drugged up. They need to have a clear mind, and be able to think clearly they need to make sure that what they're taking into their lives not just in drink but in anything is not hindering their usefulness and effectiveness there's something in this word about watchfulness one quote I read said this a man should possess the inner strength to refrain from anything that would dull his effectiveness Men are inherently lazy. I've got to say to you, I am inherently lazy because I'm a man. And there's things to repent of. These things don't happen automatically. I need to watch my own heart that I'm not allowing things to come into my mind and heart and life that will sap my strength and dull my effectiveness. And so do you. Teach the older man, Titus, to be temperate, not to be enslaved by their desires, but to overcome them. Secondly, teach them to be worthy of respect. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, these older men should be boring and gloomy and killjoys. There's nothing attractive about that. But it does mean that these older men need to learn to take life seriously. There is a weight and a dignity that inspires confidence and makes others feel protected and safe. These men can be a positive influence for good. It's nothing to do with being boring or or a killjoy. But a, but a, a man who is worthy of respect knows that life is a big deal and not some cosmic joke. I thought Ken Armstrong on Friday at the coffee moment was absolutely brilliant. And when he talked about comics and our love affair in our modern culture with comics, Michael McIntyre and all these guys, I've seen them, they make me laugh. But why why is it that these men can fill out stadiums that previously could only be filled by rock groups? 
We love to be made to laugh. We love to be flippant and trivial and shallow and superficial. Titus, teach these older men to be worthy of respect. Not stand-up comics. They should laugh at the right things. And be sad at the right things. Teach them thirdly, Titus, to be self-controlled. Teach them to have some common sense. Not to be rash and impetuous. Not to pretend but to have about them a sensitive humility. They know when and how to say no. They appreciate the real value of things. These are men who have lived life. They've seen experiences. They've got the t-shirt. They know what really counts in life. Sometimes I think when we're young, I think I'm still young enough to qualify for being young-ish, we think we know all the answers, we, 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 we've got big dreams and ambitions. An older man, he, he, he's, he's been through all of that. He's seen his family grow, he, he knows what really matters in life. And it's not what he thought it was when he was younger. And he's got about him an ability to exude a sense of perspective on life. Aren't these wonderful words? Wouldn't it be fantastic if the children or culture could be exposed to that? This is what a real man looks like. Temperate, worthy of respect. This is not wimpish, this is strong. Augustine, that great Christian teacher, said, Man, conquer yourself and you'll have conquered the world. I can't tell you how true that is. Conquer yourself and you'll have conquered the world. If you take your notes, there's a lovely verse in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. Where there's, there's a whole genealogy there. It talks about one group of men. And it's, this is what it, it's, a, it's a big, massive genealogy. You'd skip it if you're reading it in your quiet time. But uh, it's uh, this group. They were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. What a great quality that is for a guy. To have men who understand the times and know what needs to be done. That's what Paul's talking about here. Well, it depends on three other qualities. Titus, teach these older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Sound, as we've seen, means wholesome, healthy. Sound in faith. What does that mean? This man is a man who knows that God can be trusted. He's not playing at it. He's lived life. He's got the t-shirt. And at the end of his life, he knows that God can be trusted. He has no doubt that God's ways work. He, he, he understands that if he builds his life around God, his life will be godly. Can I, can I be blunt? And I'm, I'm talking to myself here. Some of you, some of us, you're not sound in the faith now. How on earth do you hope to be sound in the faith then? If you're not sound in the faith now. It's like you're not quite sure whether it actually works. I like Christianity a bit, but I don't want to go overboard with it. It's good to hedge my bets, you know, it might be wrong. 
I was talking to a non-Christian friend the other day who's really thinking about Christianity. And this friend is reading the Gospels and seeing with great clarity the truth of the Gospel. And this person said to me, how can I have faith? I just need to know that it's not a con. Can you relate to that? The challenge for you and for me is, how is such a person going to ever come to faith if Christians live as though it's a con? How's he going to believe it if you don't? And you're not sound in faith? Where's our decisiveness and courage and boldness? Our faith sometimes is like a wet sponge rather than a consistent, settled confidence in God and his ways. And sometimes we do need to acknowledge that and repent of our lack of faith and sort it out because no one else will believe it if you don't. We're going to end up being like those guys, Paul, 1 Timothy 1.19. Paul talks about people who just about managed to start sailing but end up shipwrecking their faith. Are you sound in faith? If you're going to be sound in faith as an older person, you need to start now. What about sound in love? What passes for love in our culture is beyond belief. Sentimentality, slushy, mushy, there's nothing rugged or real or unconditional about it. It isn't God's love, it's just being nice. I'm not talking about being nice, I'm talking about being courageous and having a love that is outward looking and tough and real like Jesus' love. Paul says, oh Titus, teach the older men to be sound in faith and sound in love and sound in endurance. Teach them to carry weight, not to give up at the first sign of disappointment. Teach them as older men, not just to be sitting in a waiting room waiting to die, but teach them to endure, to trust God, to love others, not to retire, not to be faint or stubborn. No Christian older person or younger person for that matter should be saying, when you think about those three things there, don't let it be the banner of your life to say, I'm not sure, I don't care, or I can't cope. That's those three things there, isn't it? I'm not sure. Don't be, be sound in faith. I don't care. Be sound in love. I can't cope. Be sound in endurance. These qualities, the, the six there, three on this side, three on that side, three of them are outer and three of them are inner. And you'll never get the outer ones right unless you get the inner ones right. And for you men who are here, and we're all young really, to neglect your prayer life and your walk with God is to neglect your manhood. If you don't get your faith, love and patience right, how on earth are you going to be getting anywhere near the things on the other side? The temptation to bitterness or grumpiness or indulgence or passiveness. The Bible speaks about being a pillar in the church. Sometimes it feels like we're caterpillars, not pillars. Self-pity, self-indulgence, it's too hard, nobody understands me, it's ridiculous. Paul, Titus, teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. Teach the older man to be real for Christ's sake. 
We haven't got time to talk about the younger man. Let's just look at verse 6 very briefly. Encourage the young man to be self-controlled. That's all he says to them. I think the reason he says that is because if, if younger men get that right, everything else falls into place, doesn't it? It's what Augustine said. If you can conquer yourself, you'll conquer the world. Self-control is crucial. The temptation for the young is to think, oh, I can do this and that, and pride. And on, on Friday, when we went down to London, we went to watch the film Thor in 3D at the Odeon in Leicester Square, front row seats on the balcony. It's fantastic. It's one of the best films I've ever seen. And if you like going to a picture, I would recommend it. Thor was the son of Odin. And there's a scene in the film, I wish I was quick enough to write down what they said. And he, he wants to fight, he's a young man, he wants to fight, and he says to his dad, you're a fool. And he goes off his willful way. And in the end, his dad rescues him, and, and it, it all comes out for good in the end. But that's the problem with younger men, isn't it? Lots of energy, but very little wisdom. Have you ever come across Wordle on the internet, when you, you can cut and paste the passage of text into the internet and it gives you a little map and the most common words in the passage are bigger and the less common words are smaller. Have you ever seen that? I did it the other day for Titus chapter 2 and this is the word it gave me. This is a word map of Titus chapter 2 in the NIV. The big words are the ones that appear more often and the little ones that just appear once. And isn't it significant that the three biggest words, God, teach and self-controlled, the fourth biggest is good. It, this chapter throbs with this, doesn't it? The word self-control comes up about, I don't know, several times. I didn't count them. What does Paul say to Titus? In everything, Titus, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech. He says similar things to Timothy. And that's a challenge to all of us, isn't it? It's a challenge to me. Am, am I setting you an example? Integrity, seriousness. Uh, if the brokenness in Crete was going to be re reversed, it needed strong leaders and committed, decisive, courageous Christian believers. If they were going to be an influence for good, they had to stand up and be counted. And if we're going to have an impact here in Rotherham, it's no good saying, oh, gospel works hard. It's hard everywhere. People are sinners everywhere. Where do, you, where do you want to go where it's going to be easy? It's no harder here than it is anywhere else. It's an excuse. The fact is, we all need to be involved, stirring one another up, being what we say we are, believing what we say we believe and living it, making sure our lives match what we say, not being cowards, but being bold. Older ones and younger ones together. You want our church to be like that? Is that something you can live for? Well, I pray that it will be so. To God's honour and, and for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Oh,